It's the kind of resilience that lasts a lifetime. It's the kind that is filled with paradox, that is not about just gritting it out and getting through, because no one can do that again and again and again and again. So it's all around paradox. It's about, yes, we need grit and perseverance, but guess what? We also need flexibility and adaptability. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Reinvent Health podcast. Here we get to chat to some of the world's most interesting and influential people about everything to do with physical, mental and spiritual well-being. If you want to make healthy changes and live a better life, you are in the right place. Please don't forget to rate, leave a review and share with everyone who wants to live their best life. And now your host, Nikki Robertson. In today's show, I have the pleasure of chatting with coach and author Gabby Lowe. Gabby's book, Get Me to 21, tells the story of her daughter Jenna, who suffered from a rare disease, pulmonary hypertension, and her fight to keep Jenna alive. In this episode, we focus on emotional resilience and how anyone can get through unbelievable tragedy. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me today on the reInvent podcast. I'm so grateful that we could have this discussion because I think it comes at a point in time where people are feeling completely out of sorts and up against the wall. And this is the kind of conversations we need to be having. Yes. So I've downloaded your book and I've started reading it. I'm about halfway through. And I have to say that as a mom, it has wrenched me completely from the beginning because you can't read a book like the one you've written and not put yourself in those in your shoes and mm -hmm. imagine what it would be like if you were going through the horror of what you and your family went through a couple of years ago so let's start by giving the audience a background of what, where it all started for you um, up until where we are today okay so what you're reading is my book called Get Me to 21, which is the story of my beautiful girl, my oldest daughter, and the battle that we had um, facing a very rare illness, which um, only came to light when she was 16 years old. So until then, Jen had been, um, she liked to say an ordinary child, but she was never an ordinary child, as you've gathered from the book. Yeah. Um, she was super bright, very eloquent, um, and had a massive heart. And when she was about 16 years old, um, she started to show signs of breathlessness. Um, and it came at a time when another tidal wave had hit our family. My, my niece, uh, Natalie, had just been diagnosed at the very tender age of 10 with a chordoma, which is a very rare form of cancer. She had a tumor growing out of her spine. So our family was in chaos and in shock, actually, um, and trying to scramble to find a cure for Natalie, scrambling to raise money that we didn't have, three million rand to get her to Boston in the United States. So all of that was going on. And Jen, who was 16 at the time, and Christy, my youngest daughter, 13, were very close to Natalie and Cola, their cousins. So when she first started showing signs of breathlessness, I have to admit that we thought it was anxiety. Yeah. But yeah, but soon afterwards I realized no, that's not the case because it also just wasn't in her nature. Jen was always quite stoic, um, matter of fact, 
straightforward. And so we started to try and look for what was going on. And obviously, we started with a GP, um, all sorts of tests, which came up with nothing. And it's a long story. And, you know, we don't have time to go into all the details. But it took 18 months to get a proper diagnosis. Crazy. At the same time as Natalie having her hectic surgery um, in the States. And when we eventually got a proper diagnosis, having been misdiagnosed with asthma for many, many months, Jane was by then seriously ill and she was stage three or category three of a very rare lung condition called pulmonary hypertension. So pulmonary hypertension sounds innocuous. It sounds like high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. It's not innocuous. It is a life-threatening lung disease for which there is currently no cure, but there are many treatments available. For us, none of those treatments, bar one entry-level treatment, was available in South Africa. So we found ourselves not only dealing with Natalie and her massive surgery and her trying to recover, but also dealing with this unbelievable diagnosis, which came as such a shock, um, having been such a healthy child. Mm. And, and then the horror of what she needed not being available in the country and having to step into becoming uh, what the dictionary actually is a real word, a momcologist, actually having to step into the role of taking on um, her diagnosis, her medical condition, and advocating to try and get what she needed. So the hardest part about that was this dual role of being her mom and just being her mom, being able to be there and, and hold for her what was emotionally necessary. Sure. And at the same time, having to step into fight mode to really fight and advocate to get what she needed into the country. I mean, this illness wasn't even recognized by medical health insurances at the time. That's ridiculous. Never mind, yeah, never mind have access to the medication. So it was a, wow, incredibly challenging journey. Yeah. From, yeah. 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 So you were going along with your lives as a happy, normal family. And as it so often happens for so many people, the rug literally gets ripped out from under your feet and nothing will ever be the same. Yes. And you've got a choice in that moment. You either do what has to be done or you collapse. Mm. And that is, you know, do we have it within all of us to pick ourselves up and do what has to be done? Is it something that is inherent is it something that we're taught? Is it something that we need to form a team around us, a support system to enable us to find strength to do what needs to be done? Mm -hmm. Because the reason I'm asking these questions is I'm sure there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who may listen to this and go, the rug's been ripped out from under my feet and I don't know how to pick myself up off the floor right now. Mm -hmm. So draw us a picture of, of you go from one day with everything, the sun is shining to mm. another day where you think the sun will never shine again. What mm. goes on in your mind and in your body? What happens? So, Nikki, I'm glad that we're having this conversation seven years later, because what the listeners don't know yet is that we lost our gen after a very long battle, of which I'm sure we'll speak about more detail. But 
we lost her um, in 2015. And to be honest, I really didn't think I would survive that. It, you know, I had put four years, well, my whole life, obviously, we love our children in a way that is indescribable. And then yeah. I had put four years of really everything I had into trying to save her, trying to change the course of the disease. And in so doing, we as a family changed the landscape of palmy hypertension in South Africa, but we didn't get to save our child. And at the time, I didn't think I would survive that, but I did. And so now that I have the benefit of hindsight seven years later, I can tell you that the answer to your question is yes to all of the above, <laughs> actually, because sure. yes, I do believe that we all, every single one of us innately has some form of resilience that we can draw on. I do think we are all born with it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. You know, <laughs> we wouldn't actually be here. We wouldn't be mm -hmm. we Yeah. So the second thing is, yes, I have gone on to study resilience, actually, for the last seven years and co-authored a model with another coach on authentic resilience. And there's a big difference between resilience, which is just about bouncing back, and authentic resilience, which is a hell of a lot more than that. Yes. And I think that it is something that we can learn intentionally, that we can grow. These are this actually, it's a practice. Healing is a practice. Yeah. Choosing to, to find joy regardless, choosing to still live, choosing to still engage is a practice. And it's a very intentional and very conscious, very conscious thing. How do you, where do you even start? Because we had by then been through so much trauma and so much loss, and you haven't got yet to the very tough part of the book. And I hope that you will have the courage to continue to read it because yeah, temptation is to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And my biggest lesson for everybody who's listening is yeah. that pain is the cure for pain. I know that sounds really weird. But but to avoid pain is to guarantee that you get stuck. Mm. To avoid the difficult emotions is to guarantee that you get stuck. And so my biggest, biggest, biggest learning and the most difficult one has been to, and I learned it from Jen. I learned it from her. I watched her face her own death slowly and lose the ability to breathe. I mean, you know, when we're all in panic, what do we say? Just breathe. Yeah. And that's what got taken away from her, the ability to breathe. I watched this beautiful, healthy child who was literally prefect, head of the class, top of the class, still one of the top 30 students in the country writing her matric on oxygen. I watched her go onto full-time oxygen, lose her mobility, go onto a mobility scooter, start to have medication three, four times a day. You know, I watched her face that with the most inordinate amount of courage. And it made me realize that what she was doing that kept her engaged in life was to face her possible death with an open heart. Uh, I don't know how you do that at that age, no. but it taught me that mm. I had no choice but to do the same. 
And seven years later, I can tell you that that has been my saving grace. The fact that I didn't shut down because we tempted. When we are in deep pain, we want to close down and shut off. We want to become smaller. We want to hide away. We want to disconnect. And it is not the soul. It is not the medicine. The theme throughout the book so far uh, and from what I'm hearing now is, and you know, when we want to shut down and hide away, um, the theme throughout the book was there was always, it was never just you. There were always people. You created it in such a way that there was a plan. There was a backup plan. There were three plans, I think. There were three plans. There were always people um, nurturing at your side. You had a team. And I think whether you're facing a crisis and going, you know, having to deal with something you don't have to deal with or having to get through a, a grief process, the critical theme for me from what you're saying is not to shy away from help mm-hmm. because many people, myself included, don't ask for help and mm. you cannot solve anything in a vacuum. And when we're alone, we're in a vacuum. Mm. So let's let's dig a little deeper into while we as a species are innately a, a tribal a, a tribal creature and how we've been how the brain has been designed to to work together as a team to get through pretty much anything if we keep that in mind absolutely and that was the other lesson is that the the medicine for isolation is connection right and connection deep connection is what makes life worth living. It's what makes the moment worthwhile. It's what makes you able to go, I don't know what the future holds, and I can see if I look at the facts that it could be horrific. But right now, I have this. Right now, she is with me. Right now, we have people around us. And it was tricky because, you know, she was more and more susceptible, obviously, to germs, to infection, and we had to keep her safe. So the temptation was to shut her down, to wrap her in cotton wool. And I am so glad that we didn't. She would not allow it. Her life would have, experience would have been different. As it happened, we managed to have, you know, the friends came here, the parties came here, into the home. Yes, they were de-germed from head to toe. And we kept her safe. But that connection is what kept Jenna engaged in life right up until the very end. And what it's taught me and, 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 and asking for help, my goodness, that was my biggest lesson because I've always been someone who's just made a plan. I have never asked for help. It does yeah. not come naturally to me. And I don't think it comes naturally to a lot of us. Yeah. But let's ask why. I mean, why is actually around a little bit of shame, a little bit of embarrassment. And that is the biggest lot of nonsense because every single one of us, and I'm sure you too included, Nikki, if I Mm. said to you, okay, so you don't like to ask for help, but but how is it to give help? I love it. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a virtuous circle, right? It's a virtuous circle. That's what I learned is that by me, giving you help, I feel better. So when I ask someone who loves us and is watching what we're going through with horror for help, oh my heavens, 
they have an opportunity to step in and gift us something that's going to make a difference to us yes. and they feel better and yes. so it, I, I genuinely got to experience what it feels like to pay it forward so we asked for so much help because we had to we had to raise literally millions of rands in order to get into the country the drugs she needed um and it was without a doubt the most humbling thing I've ever done in my life the most yeah. humbling thing mm. it was also without a doubt my biggest biggest learning my biggest learning because if we don't put up our hand and say I'm in need no one is going to know they're not mind readers. Don't sit and expect and wait. Put up your hand and say, I'm in need. And you yeah. will be gobsmacked at the response. Yes, and then guess what? Later down the line, after we lost our beautiful girl, all of that help and input has gone back to other pulmonary hypertension patients. We have started a clinic at Hodeskia. When Jen was diagnosed, there was nowhere for her to go. Yeah. I now have the Jenna Lowe Palmary Hypertension Clinic at Kuriskia. We have 500 state patients. All the help and the love that got poured into Jen wow. are being poured into people who need it. It is a virtuous circle, and we, we, we forget that. And yes. we only know that if we experience it. So try, put up your hand and say, I'm in need. Yeah. You'll be amazed at what comes. Why do you think we are taught, I think it's taught, to not ask for help? I think it's ridiculous, but it seems to be something mm. we're taught. Well, I think it goes back to that very Calvinistic upbringing thing of boys don't cry and yeah. our, our old-fashioned notion of resilience that you bounce back, that you can do it on your own, that you can go it along, that learn, that you can just grit it out. And you know what? It's It's deeply disturbing to me because we are teaching people tools that don't work that's not yeah. resourceful that's not resourceful we live in community we are hardwired to be social beings we are not wired to live as an island we aren't we know this from what happens in the brain we know this from neuroscience we know this from the, the chemistry that happens just you yeah. and I right now talking and me looking at you while I'm speaking to you oxytocin is being released we're yes. making a connection yeah. Now, when we hide away and we don't do that and we only go onto our screens, we don't get that. We don't feed what makes us more, what makes us feel like we are enough. And, and, and so, yeah, it's deeply disturbing to me that that is what's taught. And I think yeah. that it's, it's, it's really important. The other thing that we kind of grow up with is this, or I did, let me not speak for everybody, this kind of fairy tale thing that life is going to be beautiful. Well, yes, it is. And it's also going to be brutal. And best you know that from day one. Yeah. And one of the things we can do is instead of rushing in to take away pain for our children, let them feel it. There's nothing wrong. It's just an emotion. And guess what? We come through. So I'm not saying create pain. I'm saying if there's hurt, if there's discomfort, that's sure. where our greatest growth comes from. That's where yeah. our learning comes from, you know. People are so scared to feel difficult emotion. And, and, and I always say it's a bit like being caught in a riptide. You know, when you swim against it, you drown. But if you allow yourself to feel, you come back to shore. Yeah. And then you know next time, oh, 
okay, I've been there before and guess what? I was okay. And so you build a deep resilience, an mm. internal resilience, emotional resilience. It is so true. We do automatically try and prevent our children from feeling anything negative. Mm. And again, we're depriving them of a growth opportunity. As hard as it is to watch your child suffer, to hold or to, you know, kids don't listen to what we tell them, but they mirror who we are and what we do. So first we've got to sit with our own pain and be able to articulate to them that we're in pain, but it's okay. It's okay mm -hmm. to be in it. And then also to be able to hold their hand while they're going through pain and not try and change it or make it logical or draw smiley faces around it is to just mm -hmm. be in that moment. And it's really hard, but as a parent as well, to, to be able to get yourself to do that is incredibly rewarding because you watch how your kids flourish just mm -hmm. by being able to be with themselves. Absolutely. And the other mm. thing that we do when we try to rush in and fix something all of the time is not only do we, we undermine their feelings, actually. That is by so rushing true. in to <laughs> fix it, you undermine what they're feeling. It's all yeah. you might as well be saying, oh, that's nonsense. Just, you know, move on. Nonsense. And all we need to half feel better already is acknowledgement. Acknowledgement is so powerful. So to rush in and fix is actually undermining what your child is feeling. Yeah. And then what do we teach them when we undermine? We teach them that that's shameful. And so the cycle begins. Yes. Oh, I need to hide that difficult feeling. And now I don't learn how to process emotion because processing emotion starts with sitting with it. Yeah. And when we can process emotion, we are emotionally intelligent. And when we are emotionally intelligent, we have access to choice all of the time. Yes. And it's exactly that. It is. is yes. You have choice. That's exactly that. Mm -hmm. So, so Jen, literally, I don't know, you know, because people have said to me, well, how, how come she had the wisdom and the maturity to do that, to hold that and Gosh, I'd love to say, well, it was my parenting, but you know what? I, I can't claim that because um, she just was an exceptional human. Um, but she really, really gave me an experience of that because there were times, and my goodness, oh, there were times where in near the end, um, she, I can't say she knew because we never completely knew and we fought right to the very end we thought there was hope. we had hope right to the end of course. but there were moments where where we all knew the chances of her surviving were were not good and you know she was in the icu for six months oh. 187 days in icu it, it was it was beyond beyond, beyond belief. description and beyond belief the the suffering that she went through and if i had tried in some flippant way to make that better. Oh my goodness gracious me. So there were times that I literally had to just sit with her fear of death or her, yeah. her knowledge of what she was facing. Mm -hmm. Oof, that was that was hard because oh. every cell in my being wanted to make it better. But I learned in those moments. That by being able to just be with her, with that, yeah. to just 
hold that with her is what she needed. How did you learn that? Because if I, I'm again, I'm putting myself in your shoes again as a mom. I would also want to, you know, create hope, want to look for the positive, create this sunny disposition around, especially your child who's going through something as horrific and terrifying. How did, at what point during your process did you go, I can't do that. I've just got to be me. I've got to be real. What was the switch well, for you? I have to uh, thank and acknowledge my therapist. <laughs> I have had the most unbelievable therapist with me throughout all of this. And if it wasn't for her, I don't know that I would have identified that or found the strength within sure. me. Um, so, but being open to learning, you know, being open to, to having to navigate and find new ways. Um, and it doesn't mean that I didn't try always to keep hope alive. I did, but I, I also didn't squash her fears and her, her very, and our very real fears. That's enormous. It's an enormous undertaking for anyone to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very clear that that's what needs to be done, but it's not, it's no way easy to do. So, you know, you mentioned isolation and I think it was isolation versus connection and how we're so innately geared and adapted and say, you know, we need connection and I'm, this is not a, a podcast about COVID, but we can't talk about resilience without referring to what we've been through Absolutely. for the past you know, couple of years and how we were forced into isolation and what that's done to so many people. You know, there's PTSD and trauma has uh, you know, reared its head in a way that has never been seen before because of the isolation. Mm. But from your point of view, what are you seeing as you, know, you you're a coach you you've lived through the traumas of not only you know what you've been through but the last two years alongside all of us what are you seeing as far as people are concerned um with how they what the fallout of mm. the last two years absolutely in my coaching practice seeing the fallout um loud and clear and it's an extraordinary thing because when we first went into COVID, I saw a lot of heightened levels of anxiety, of course, around health and are we safe and all of that, but also heightened levels of anxiety around going into lockdown. And now there are anxiety, there's anxiety around coming out and, and yeah. needing to be in the world again and realizing that actually being in the world is, is a a paradoxical thing and it's complex because being in the world you need quite a skin quite a tough skin yeah. and um and it can be quite an onslaught and yet being in the world is what we need so um yeah it's tough people are finding it very hard and i'm seeing the mental health fallout on a daily basis heightened panic attacks heightened levels of anxiety heightened levels yeah. of self-doubt mm -hmm. um and wanting to hide away, wanting of saying, oh, but this is a nice, safe little, little space here. The problem with a safe little space is that it's very tempting to stay there. And what happens is our life gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And as we know, the opposite of depression is expression. And you can't yeah. be doing that on your own. You need to be out there engaging. Um, but it is hard. So now what I'm discovering is that in order to be able to cope with 
the, the realities of the world, which are not always easy, and we can't expect them to be easy. There are a few things. There's, there's the number one, knowing what self-care means for you. And it's such an underrated term because oh, self-care yes. mm -hmm. is vital. And being gentle with ourselves when we are going through grief, loss, disappointment, and healing is absolutely vital. And for me, being gentle with myself means I go to my yoga, I do my meditation, I notice when I'm tired, which is all new for me. This, uh, you know, I never used to do that. I just sure. used to push through. Mm -hmm. And pushing through does not work. It does not work because you have many other marathons to run. So taking care, listening to what my body needs, noticing what my body needs. That's what I mean by self-care, right? But also emotional self-care, learning yes. how to set emotional boundaries. Yeah. And when you are able to do that, then you're able to be in the wide world. You're able to be in the world in a way that is integrous with yourself and your own needs. And so I think that that's really important. And what we are not doing is we're not taking care of our own needs, but also remembering this doesn't mean not taking care of the needs of other because we are in community. So it's not yeah. just about our needs. When mm. we take care of our own needs, then we can say, okay, now I go into building meaning, which is about taking care of other people's needs as well. Sure. sure. And that yeah. building meaning is what keeps us engaged in the world. Of course. And alongside not being able to ask for help is we're not taught to build boundaries. Most people haven't first clue about a personal boundary. Mm -hmm. um, again, it probably just goes back to the way we were brought up. You know, you don't say no, you, you always accommodating. And yeah, unless you've got, if you're, con unless you're conscious of self-care, you're going to run out of resources. You won't be able to help anybody else. Exactly. And you know, I think many people realize this on an on a on a theoretical level, um, but they don't practice it. And I mean, in my practice, I'm I'm I work in, in, in nutrition first and foremost, but nutrition is it's a tip of the iceberg. Everything underlying that is a sense of self-care. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to even you know, you come and want, a, people come and want to diet or they want to lose weight or they want to get healthy, uh, but they're not taking the steps underneath that mm -hmm. to create boundaries in their lives, to have mm -hmm. a plan, to think about what their bodies need. They just want a mm -hmm. diet plan. It's like, it's never going to work. I mean, no, it's ridiculous. Exactly. exactly. Um, so we have to build on, you know, knowing when you're tired, knowing when you, if you can't sleep, what's going on in your body is being much more acutely self-aware of what's going on for you before you can expect any kind of coaching. Well, 100%. Coaching teaches you this, but you can't, it won't take effect mm -hmm. until you know what you need and why you need and take the steps to do what needs to be done mm -hmm. on a very mm -hmm. basic level. So what and you're talking about right there is emotional intelligence. Right. And without that, we have no <laughs> you know, emotional intelligence is vital for our ability to access choice on, on a minute-by-minute minute basis. And it starts with self-awareness. Self-awareness, such deep self-awareness, which is not about being selfish. It's about being aware of my impact on those around me, my impact on the world, um, how other people are responding, how I'm responding. Real granular awareness of self is what allows you to then self-regulate. How can you self-regulate 
your emotion and your behavior and how you show up in the world if you're not self-aware. You have to start with being self-aware. And then only when I can self-regulate can I co-regulate and be in the world and in society in a way that is appropriate and caring and empathetic. Exactly. And then I can access empathy and I can access deeper social skills. It all starts with self-awareness. Right. Right. It all starts with self-awareness, yeah. And I think, if anything, this isolation over the last years has squashed self-awareness. And what we're seeing in, in corporates is people not wanting to go back to work full-time. So they go back twice a week. But there's a big pushback against being in the office because then I have to take care of myself so I can be there for other people and I can be empathetic and I don't want to do that because I don't even know how to look after my own needs mm -hmm. and it's really brought to light where the gaps are in our psyches as a as a species living mm -hmm. in the 21st century the gaps of our our learning about how to be human where do you see this going there's so many psychosocial issues sitting under that but nothing to do with the virus. It's a psychosocial issue. I don't want to respond in the world. Mm, absolutely. So mm. I'm seeing it in my coaching practices. I'm seeing it um, from both sides. So I am uh, coaching sort of leaders who are saying, oh, how do I get my people back into the office? It is so difficult because I understand that some people can get more done at home when they're not interrupted. But I also understand I'm losing the culture of my business and my interns don't have people to learn from and the conversations that happen around the water cooler that are so important aren't taking place yeah. and there isn't a sense of team and I don't have multiple lenses on any one problem because people aren't in the office. So they're losing a lot. And then I also see it from the perspective of individuals who come for coaching who saying, I don't want to spend an hour in the traffic on the way to work and an hour in the traffic on the way back from work. I've discovered yeah. that I have more time for myself, that I can wake up, I can do my yoga. And then by the time I sit down at my desk at eight or half past eight, I have done all my self-care. I've done my yoga, I've done my meditation, I've had a healthy breakfast and I can give more, I'm more productive. So each side has got a point, but we know that as a species, we can't live in isolation. So what I'm thinking is I'm thinking we're heading towards a new way of being in the the world of 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 commerce where we need to we need to take care of both we need to find a way to take care of both so is that part of the time in the office part of the time not how do you do that do you need the whole team there at the same time or do just silos of people come how do you work that out but i think it's going to have to be conscious very conscious and yeah. it's going to have to be different for each business and there needs to be a combination of the two. Yeah. And I think it's understanding that people are traumatized. I think, I don't know anybody who hasn't been traumatized to an extent. Mm. Um, and creating resources where it's safe to speak about these things. That's another thing that keeps coming up as a theme I'm seeing with people is we're not feeling safe. And when we're not feeling safe, we're always in anxiety. We're not going to sleep. We're mm. always hypervigilant. Mm. And it's a theme that's always been there, but it's gone 100 times worse in the last two years is that I said, not just in this country, 
worldwide is our sense of basic safety is is wobbly and I, I, you know it makes sense that it's because we're feeling isolated because as again as a species there's safety in numbers there's safety you know from the predator if we are in a close-knit group mm-hmm. and as the world gets more advanced technologically we don't have that mm-hmm. um, families aren't as close-knit mm-hmm. uh, as they should be and I mean thinking again to your book the close knittedness of your family and extended family and friends is the support bubble that enabled you to go through the horror of what you went Mm. through. Mm. Um, And it's, I think something for people to really consider is maybe your family isn't your bubble. Maybe you need to find another support team. You know, it doesn't have to be family. It needs to be someone. It needs to be more than someone. It needs to be someone's. And absolutely. It can't be one person. You need a team around you, a network, and and it's and it's important that you're conscious about building that network and about looking after that network and nurturing that network, because in real times of horror and difficulty, you will need each other, and it doesn't have to just be family. It can be colleagues. It can be leaders in the community. It can be people you look up to. It can be people who you have shared hobbies with, shared interests with, friends, anybody. But mm. to genuinely really work on that um, community is a vital part of staying, um, well, authentically resilient, as I call it, and, and yes. connected. And it all comes down to one word, actually, I think. If you feel held, you will be okay. Yes. yes. It's, it actually That's comes exactly down it. to that one word. If you feel held, there's yeah. nothing that you can't face. That's what I was doing for my Jane in those moments where I couldn't fix anything, but I could hold it for her. Just to feel held makes it okay. So it's an extraordinary thing that. Yeah, I think if we think of any significant relationships in any of our lives, positive significant relationships, is a sense of being held and not, when I say held, I mean, there's no judgment. It's just a space where you can be whatever you are. Mm. and to be able to give that to somebody and receive it from maybe not the same person a different person it's fine as long as we can all find somewhere in our lives where we feel we've got that Mm. vessel where we can just be by setting boundaries and honoring ourselves if we set emotional boundaries then we can start to develop our own internal holding okay what does that look like what does an internal holding feel like for me It's about finding a place inside of myself that I know I always have access to. So um, is it John Kabat-Zinn who said, wherever you go, there you are. So beautiful. And we can't always rely on the external for our happiness, for our sense of security and for our sense of self-worth. And I think that if we did, um, yeah, that's problematic. (laughs) We have to find it inside. We have to find it inside. So creating a place inside of ourselves where we are able to hold things for ourselves the difficult things for ourselves that is it's hard um but it's vital and it's doable and a practice that really helps with that is meditation consistent meditation you've touched on the three key areas to to happiness the first theme is being able to move through the pain so that you can define happiness versus unhappiness you can see them clearly the second element was community. So to be able to be in community um, because we're all in this together. And the third element was being able to be self-sufficient. 
but none of those you can separate. They all need to exist in parallel in our universe together all the time. And that's where you find happiness, which is, mm. you know, I suppose resilience, yes. happiness, they're an interconnected concept, um, which is they it's are. They wonderful. are interconnected. Mm. They are interconnected. So you talk about authentic resilience. What is authentic resilience? It's the kind of resilience that lasts a lifetime. It's the kind that is filled with paradox. That is not about just gritting it out and getting through because no one can do that again and again and again and again. So it's all around paradox. It's about, yes, we need grit and perseverance, but guess what? We also need flexibility and adaptability. Yes, we need um, to be able to ask for help. And we also need to be able to find a home within ourselves where we can hold things for ourselves. And so it goes. I mean, authentic resilience, as I said, I've written this, co-authored this model, and it's called the 10 hours of authentic resilience. It is complex. It is complex, but it's totally doable. And it's a practice. You know, you can't not stop at the watering hole when you're running a marathon. Yes. And if, if you, you have to stop at the watering hole. And geez, like, did I learn that in ICU? I mean, six months of that, uh, I mean, if anyone's been in ICU, it's a very brutal environment with beeping and machines and noise and people are not doing well and it's constant. And, and you can't yeah. see out the window and you don't know if it's day or night. And, you know, it's hectic. Imagine being in that for 187 days. It, it's, it's, and it's, it's just almost intolerable. And that was when I discovered meditation. Because the only place to go where I could find comfort was inside. There was none to be found outside. None. Yeah. I don't know why I got waylaid by that. But um, that is where I, found, where I found meditation. And I think that if, if, you can, if you can find an anchor within yourself, that you know you can come back to, mm. that is that is deeply rewarding and very empowering, very empowering, because therein and we've we've mentioned this a few times lies choice, right? So is it? It's Viktor Frankl who wrote *Man's Search for Meaning*, who says yeah. we can't change what happens, but we always have a choice, and the choice is how to respond, and that yeah. is true. Mm. That's where our power lies in the choice yeah. as to how we're going to respond to something, in yes. every second of every day. Yes. So to step back and have a broader perspective and have um, that perspective, then you have access to choice. That's one of the concepts of authentic resilience is how do we stay in a place of realistic optimism where we are able to hold the facts, the real facts in one hand, not our assumptions and our beliefs and our opinions, but the facts and hope in the other. That is so important, the real facts, not the facts that come up in our imagination at three o'clock in the morning about a situation and we are so far far away from the truth but that informs the state so powerfully mm-hmm. and it informs how we respond to everybody else during the day based on a complete fantasy because we didn't go and get the facts and exactly. I can say one of my most valuable learnings was I don't know what people are thinking we all think we know what people are thinking. We all assume we know what people are going through by the expression on their face or the way they talk. We haven't the faintest idea. Mm-hmm. And the most freeing experience is to say, I don't know what you're thinking. Tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to let go this 
this assumption we live in because mm. most of the time we're absolutely wrong and mm. it's freedom when we realize that mm. I say it to my clients all of the time, assumption is the root of all evil, as far as I'm concerned. It yeah. is the root of all evil, you know, and it works It works the other way as well. Like, uh, you know, I have people who say, well, he should know that I need him to tell me that I love him. Or that, that, you know, know. <laughs> no one knows. Nobody's a remind reader. It's your responsibility to ask for what you need. And no one else is responsible for your emotional well-being. You are. Yeah. You are. That is and that's Absolutely. empowering. That is deeply empowering to realize, hold on, I don't hold hand over my emotional well-being to someone else. It's my responsibility. And if you can really get that, then you do start asking for what you need. Yes, yes. Oh, we've got to just relearn everything and start again, it seems. But this is this is what it is to be human. You know, the job's never done. No, of course not. And all yeah. of these things we're talking about now are all part of authentic resilience. They all come into being authentically resilient. Okay. Yeah. So you run a course on authentic resilience. Are you mm. are you still running a course? Yeah. So Pippa and I have a, a second. I have a second coaching practice called the Resilience Factory with Pippa. Um, she's also been through terrible loss in her life, and yeah, we run workshops, courses, um, interventions of in, you know individual one-on-one coaching or coaching circles, yeah, all sorts of things. And then I have my private practice, the coaching nest as well. Right. So anyone listening who's curious, firstly, I would highly recommend getting hold of your book, Get Me to 21. It's available everywhere. But also contacting you directly as far as coaching is concerned. And I'll put all of the the contacts and the links into the show notes. So anyone listening can easily find you um, online. And what advice would you give to someone listening right now who's feeling completely out of sorts, isolated, panicked, in fear, doesn't know what to do next? What is the first step that anyone, any of us can take to just stop the bus and make a wise next decision? The first thing is to step back, almost become the observer of yourself and your situation take a few very deep breaths and get some perspective because so often what we think is an impossible situation is not an impossible situation. There are always, always ways through and there are always people that can help. So I think that there's a big difference between being self-aware and being self-obsessed and becoming almost um, unable to become the observer of yourself. So when we talk about self-awareness being the starting point of emotional intelligence, what we're talking about is the ability to observe yourself without judgment. But if you get stuck inside of yourself, then you can't have perspective. So stepping back and having some kind of perspective, and then the very next step is, okay, what are the real facts here? What are the actual facts? Not what I think is going on, the assumptions, my beliefs, my fears for the future, because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You can't be sure. You don't know. What do you know? Absolutely. That everybody would agree is a fact. And that's the place to start. I agree. Um, Yeah, that is the place to start because it takes all of that fear out of it. It's like, okay, right now I know I've got a roof over my head, some food in the fridge. I have my health. I have my health. I have my body. 
I have a few people who love me. Whatever it is, what are the facts? What do you have? Start with what you do have, not what you don't have. That's so powerful as well, is always panicking about tomorrow, money and what ifs, but what do you have now? Mm-hmm. And in this moment, are you okay? And I think a lot of us can say, well, right now, yes. And use that to manage your state, not to live, again, anxiety is yeah. living in the future. It may never happen. What a waste of energy mm-hmm. <laughs> to live mm-hmm. in a place that may never exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so you haven't got to the part of the book yet where um, three months after Jen passed, my beautiful husband, who I'm still married to 32 years ago, told me that he has cancer. We are still in the, the fight, the battle. Yeah. And so what we've just been talking about now of not stepping into fear of the future, I have been trying to stay in that place for seven years. And it's a conscious effort to not allow your thoughts. You yeah. don't have to get on that bus. When your thoughts start going towards the future, don't get on the bus hmm. because you don't know. So literally, physically yeah. pull yourself back from that thought and come back to the present moment. It's yeah. a practice. But it's it a works. practice. It is a, a practice. practice. No one just gets it right. You've mm. got to work this thing. Mm. You have to work it. Right. Okay. Gabby, that was, I feel so positive after, after chatting to you. Um, it is, I think it's really important for people to listen to this kind of discussion because everybody I know is suffering to some extent. There's no human that I know of that isn't going through something. So Mm. thank you so much for your valuable time to put your wisdom out there and to share your, your experience because sharing is the way we heal very much on so many levels is to know that we're not alone and sharing is, well, suffering is, is universal Um, and there's always a way to get that you know to find a space where you're understood where you're heard Mm. Um, if you go look for it if it's important to you if you've got Mm. to that point where you just can't do this anymore Mm. so thank you thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your vulnerability because that's what it is um, so that other people can heal as well no thank you for having me and for what you're doing for everybody out there you know you're right there's always a way through 